Hi, and welcome to the Healing of Seven Generations First podcast. Uh, my name is Amanda Trites. I am the First Nation Métis Inuit court support worker here, um, and I am Anishinaabe. My family comes from Serpent River, um, and I am Bear Clan, and I'm here today for our first episode speaking with our knowledge keeper or fire keeper, um, as he likes to be referred to, uh, Mr. Kelly Curley, um, and we're going to ask him to give us a little insight um, into his experience with the residential schools. Um, So Kelly, do you mind telling us a little bit about your story in light of everything that's been going on with the residential schools um, and stuff for our listeners? Well, first of all, let me introduce myself. Jeet Janada. So what I told you is my name's Jeet Janata. It means little frog that's all over the place. Original peoples of this land. I come from the people of the Longhouse. Onadegega is my nation. I'm of the Onondaga Nation. Nagahyongo is my family. I belong to the Beaver Clan. And Horaskanagete, some people call it the Men's Fire. Media likes to call it the Warrior Society. However, it's neither one of those, yet it's both of those and more. Horiskanagete translates to they carry the burden of peace on their back or on their shoulders. So that's who I am. I started my residential school years, uh, I believe it was 1969. Uh, I was there for one year. Uh, One school year, I was there until it closed. In going to the residential school, uh, the first thing that happened to me was I had my hair cut and I was de-loused. That happens to all, everybody who goes there. And I remember that in in going there, we had some free time. We did have fun, but there was a lot of times that wasn't a good experience. Uh, In particular, I remember a a few incidences. One was uh, I was asked to close a door. There was four of us come in a door and the house father says, Kelly, go close the door. And I says, but I wasn't the last one in. So-and-so was the last one in. And he says, go close the door. And I says, it's so-and-so's responsibility to do that. I was the second one in. And he walked up to me and he slapped me across the face. And when he hit me, I got angry. And I went running out, went running out of the, the room and I ran outside and he followed me. And when he come out, he told me to stop. He was talking to me. And when I stopped, he says, you get back in there and close the door. And I said, it's so-and-so's job. And he slapped me again. The second time he slapped me, I got pissed off. And I looked at him and I says, when I go home on a weekend, I'm going to get my brother to come up here and kick your ass. I had an older brother who was about 20, 24, 25. I said, I'm going to get him to come up here and kick your kick your ass and he slapped me again and then I had to go and report to the 
to Mr. Cannon, who was the head of the residential school. He was the uh, Cannon Zimmerman. And when I went and talked to him uh, and explained the situation, I got a strap on my, on my hands for, um, for being disrespectful to a house father. That was one. That's the first time I've ever been hit in my life by by a person, and in that, the next incident was when I went to. Uh, we were well. I guess it would be the first incident, not the next one. The first incident was when we went to residential school. We were on Sunday. We had to put on these clothes and and go to church. So because I was a new a new uh, client or a new student, we were made to go up and stand and uh, kneel down in front of the first pews. Uh, and there was a little wall, probably 30 inches high. And we kneeled down and all the new recruits and the chaplain come along and, or the priest, whatever he was. And he was putting these little round biscuits on people's tongues. And because I was new, I didn't know what to do. And the house father walked up behind me, grabbed me by the shoulder and dug his fingers into my sh collarbone. And when I moaned or yelled out in pain, like, ah, then that's when the, the priest put that little wafer on my tongue. Then he gave us a drink of, uh, grape juice out of a silver goblet and I was registered as being taken communion. I don't know what that is and I still don't know to this day. I have an idea. But that was the house father kept his hand in my collarbone squeezing until I accepted the wine as well. And that's the only time he released the pressure. Now as a young kid I was maybe thir 13 years old at that time, and I wasn't big for my age. I was probably one of the smallest for my age group. And the other, there's another incident where when we went to the residential school, um, all the new recruits again would have to uh, hang on these pipes and you had to go hand over hand on these on these hot water pipes across the entire length of the playroom in the basement. So I did it. Um, they asked my nephew to to also do it, and and he couldn't or wouldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't physically. Um, so I did it for him, but they still wanted him to do it, and my brother ended up. Uh, fighting with one of the guys because he says he didn't have to do it. So there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of, uh, well, a lot of it was really play. Some of it was play, but some of it was malicious play, if that makes sense. And when I was there at the residential school, there was people, I heard stories of about people who the year before uh, went away and never came back. One guy actually um, 
froze to death on the railroad tracks because he tried to run away. And they found him on the railroad tracks 50 miles away or however far he was, and he was froze to death on the railroad tracks. There's a lot of uh, stories of abuse. A lot of us were put in, in um, they had these little cubby holes uh, on the side of the dormitories. And a lot of people would be put in the cubby holes until they conformed to whatever the house fathers wanted them to conform to. Um, whether they were being disciplined for disagreeing, dis disciplined for saying no, uh, not doing their chores, uh, speaking a language which was strictly forbidden. So whatever they were in there for. But the, the rest of the students would try to sneak them food and try to sneak them something to, because when they were in there, they didn't really basically get anything. And they could be in there for up to a week. So it was, it was, it was disheartening. It was saddening. And because I was 13 when I went there, I had already learned Gaina Lagoa or the Great Law or the Seven Grandfather teachings. So I had a good understanding of, of, how people should behave or respond or react. And it was nothing like that. It was it was a dictatorship. If you were told to do something, you were supposed to do it, whether it was right or wrong. And there was a lot of sexual abuse. One night when I was sleeping, um, well, before that, that night, but some of the uh, older students would tell me that because I would ask them, how come that that guy came in that door, that exit door, fire exit door, how come he came in that door and took that student out, woke him up out of bed and took him out? And all they told me was, it's going to be your turn eventually. They're going to come after you eventually. And I didn't know what was going on, but I noticed these students would leave the leave the dormitory and they would come back a couple hours later and they'd be crying and subbing and and after a few months at the school uh, I woke up and this house father he had a hold of my hand my wrist and I was on a top bunk and he was waking me up he wanted me to go with him and I kept saying no no I'm not going and he says, come on, you, come on. And he kept being more forceful. And the more he tried to get me to go with him, the louder I got. Um, I was what they considered an intermediate. And I knew that if I could wake up all the intermediates, uh, that he would go or he would leave or whatever he would do. So I just kept getting louder. No, I'm not going. No, no. And, and some of the other students start waking up. And as more students woke up, then he he let my hand go and, and he went by himself. But I believe that what he was going to do was he was going to take me in the back and either molest me or, or, or sexually assault me or whatever, because I seen these other students who would leave through that exit door and come back. They'd leave with a, with a staff and they would come back by themselves crying. So... I didn't want that to happen, but after a while, I knew what was happening. I knew they were being sexually molested. I knew that. So 
it's just one of those things that because I was older, I was an intermediate. I was 13 years, well, I turned 14 in December of that year, but um, when I left, I was 14 years old, and it's one of the best. It was one of the happiest days in my life when I realized I didn't have to go back to the residential school. However, that being said, when I got out of the residential school, I did go into foster care. So I, I was in the system, and I hated foster care. Um, I had a wonderful foster family, but I hated foster care in itself because in my being, in my, in my spirit, in my soul, or whatever you want to call it, in my mind, I was always thinking, how come my family don't love me? How come I have to be in a residential school? How come I have to, even though all my family was in a residential school, I was the only one that went to foster care of my siblings and I always wondered how come I had to go to foster care didn't didn't my family love me and I didn't talk to my family for years after I got out of foster care and the re only way I got out of foster care was when I turned 18 I says excuse English piss on this I ain't I ain't staying here no more and I left I left my foster home uh, I didn't finish grade 12 high school I had an 85 85% average. I had two months to go to finish, and I didn't because I was so sick of that system of being told what to do and when to do it and how to do it and blah, blah, blah. So today I became, at that time, I became an alcoholic and a drug addict uh, until I was 35 years old. And at age 35, then I, I went and, and went to Alcohol and Drug Treatment Center uh, just because of of the shit in my life that happened to me, that I became an alcoholic drug addict. And it wasn't until age 35 where I was already married five years, but that's when I decided to go to uh, alcohol and drug treatment. It was one of the best things I ever did, if not the best thing I ever did for myself. And... Through that, my my life has opened up afterwards. Uh, up until age 35, I would have a job. I would keep it for six months and quit. Um, I got married when I was 30. I started my own company, uh, Aero Contracting. Um, however, in the first five years of my marriage, I still had a lot of marital problems, dysfunctional problems, and I had tried to quit drinking probably four times what I considered four honest attempts. I quit for nine months, 12 months, six months, 18 months, and no matter what, I would go back to alcohol and drugs. And it was only when my wife walked out of me, walked out on me and said, Kelly, you got a problem, fix it. She didn't tell me I was an alcoholic. She didn't tell me I was a drug addict. She didn't tell me I had a problem with anger. She didn't tell me nothing. She just said, you got a problem, fix it, and walked out the door with my kids. So at that point, that was the low point or my rock bottom, and that's where I decided to go to treatment and get my life straightened around. And that's about it for me. Um, 
So I don't know. You're going to hear a lot of stories. Uh, I can tell you some real horrific ones, but I didn't experience them firsthand. However, they were told to me in later years. And I would like to talk about just one about um, in 1996, I was one of the um, steering committee members for the lawsuit against Canada for the residential school abuses. And I would travel, I would go to Sarnia, I'd go to Sault Ste. Marie, I'd go Ottawa, I'd go all over the place and talk to different peoples about residential school. And I thought I had that dealt with my healing. And one day I went to Sarnia and I was speaking and there was this old woman. She was probably, I'm going to say, in her 70s and she maybe close to 80. She, she waved, she was sitting in a wheelchair and when I come off the stage, she waved me over and she says, when you were talking, you told me your name was Kelly Curley. She said, did you know Emma Curley and Areva Curley? And I says, yeah, Emma Curley's my mother and Reva Curley is her youngest sister. She's Reva Curley's my aunt. She said, I went to residential school with them and I haven't seen them since. And this is going back to 1930, 1940 in, 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 in that area. And, and she said, when we were at the residential school, she says, there was myself, there was your mother, um, Wilma Martin and Ruth Hill, and they're all from Six Nations, those last three, but this woman was from Sarnia, and she said they were walking down a, a hallway, and they heard a baby crying, and when they looked in the door where the sound was coming from, they seen a man who they believed was a janitor, um, had a newborn baby in the in the in a cardboard box and he was putting it in the furnace. And I often wondered why my mom never talked about being in a residential school. And it wasn't only, it was only 1998 when we got the uh, school list from the Anglican diocese that I seen my mother's name and every one of her siblings were on that list is having attended the residential school. And I often wondered why she would always say, I wish it was a man for five minutes because I'd show him a thing or two. And I realized I know the man she was saying it about, and I also know the man was a janitor at the residential school. So it's, it's those kind of stories that our people didn't talk about. I didn't even know my mother went to residential school till after we started the lawsuit, until after I got the a hold of the um, the list of attendees at the residential school through the Anglican diocese, where I seen my mother's name and all my aunties and uncles on that list. So they never spoke about it. It was a big family secret, and it's still like that today. People don't want to talk about it because of the hurt it brings up within themselves. And we are the direct result of intergenerational trauma, direct trauma from the residential school, and a lot of us don't know why or how come we carry it, and it's because our parents or grandparents went to residential school and they never talked about it. They only acted out. So that's all I can say.
Thank you very much, Kelly Curley. Um, so, in light of everything that's going on, we know there's some horrific stories, and we really hope that you will all listen to these stories and and take into account that these are just some of the stories. Some we will never know and never hear. And we thank you for listening and tune in for our next episode.